This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold. I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior economist to WisdomTree. The discussion is not tied to the offer sale investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree affiliates. We have a really interesting show talking about market sentiment, how that impacts the market. Uh, but before we get to that, Professor, we got some more data out this week, some more econ data, some more inflation data. The markets are cheery going into the uh, the holiday weekend. How are you? Uh, how are you looking at things? Yeah, uh, I mean, um, there's, there's no question. The, the economic data has come in much stronger than really anyone anticipated. Um, I mean, you know, durable goods were really strong, and now we had jobless claims drop back down, not all the way down, but they did drop down somewhat. Uh, consumer expectations remain fairly firm. Um, what sort of surprises me is, uh, and, and disappoints me, is the fact that since the Fed has met almost three weeks ago, virtually every inflation indicator has come in at or below expectations. Yet it appears that the Fed continues to escalate its um dot five uh, it's like a war against economic growth now not not inflation um uh because inflation has not come in any worse on any of the metrics that they had and yet you know people are now uh the market is pricing in even stronger cuts i mean it's it's um and the market's opinion is uh i like the stronger economy more than i fear the fed who's uh, it's playing the game. Who's a, who's afraid of the big bad Fed? <laughs> I mean, I, it's quite striking that earlier this year, any time any official hinted at um, you know a, a more aggressive posture, uh, the market would shudder. Now the market doesn't shudder at all. I mean, it's like, oh, that's because growth is better, and that's because profits are better, and I don't care about the Fed anymore. Well, <laughs> we'll see how long that. Um, last, but it's there. Uh, the momentum in the tech stocks is still there. It has not been broken. I mean, um, um, it's not an overbought. It's a rally. Um, I think, again, I think the not the tech market might be slightly overvalued on a long-term basis. Non-tech market, I think, is slightly undervalued on a long-term basis, but um, the momentum is there, and they don't fear the Fed. Now, uh, again, the only thing that I think is going to change their mind is if we really get a weak employment uh, report. And, of course, we know a week from today we do, and uh, we'll be covering what, what it uh, does. We, I mean, we'll get a report. We don't know how weak it's going to be. Actually, the early numbers are, are quite strong at 200,000, um, which would be pretty strong in face of the jobless claims numbers, which on a three-month average are still somewhat elevated. Yet, um, the consumer, again, is still in a, a, a spending mode. Uh, we had a big revision, a very unusual a third revision, uh, significantly upward for first quarter GDP. Second quarter GDP um, is now revised to, uh, you know, one and a half to two percent, some a little bit over two percent um, at the present time. Um um, uh, so again, uh, you know, I think, I mean, the path, short term, the path of least resistance is definitely up on the market. And I think that tech is still short run favored. Um, but you know, all you need is a, a disappointing earnings report or a disappointing employment report. And I think it's only an employment report that would turn the Fed into saying maybe we shouldn't get any more rate hikes. I think they're operating pretty much on a, you know, what we call a 
an old Phillips curve idea, which interestingly enough, in uh, um, 2019, and, and, um, uh, uh, Chairman Powell said, we don't believe much in it anymore, but they're believing in it now. Strong economy means more inflation threat, even though the numbers are still coming in very good in the commodity markets and the oil markets and everything else looking forward is not elevated at all. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Goldilocks economy. Uh, strong economic growth, inflation in check. And uh, uh, so many people missed out on this rally that they're continuing to feed it on the way up. That, that's a good tease into our conversation with our guests uh, later in the program. You, you had been a little cautious, worried about the Fed. Is, is there, as you think about where we are now, are you surprised we haven't seen more of a deterioration from these higher rates is, in terms of both yes. the economy and the market? Yeah, I, I think I, I am. I, I, would thought, I would have thought, given the banking situation and the higher real rates going forward, that there would be more of a slowdown in economic activity that we would see so far. Uh, by the way, one, one thing that's interesting is that the, uh, the case sure uh, numbers ticked upward um, on the housing market. I thought we had another maybe 3 to 5% downward, but the last two have shown that housing prices are stabilizing, although let's face it, existing home sales are very low, and a lot of them are cash deals because no one wants to give up their 2% and 3% mortgages. So uh, as a result, I'm not sure how reliable all those indicators are, but the housing market has definitely taken a turn towards stability here. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm, I'm surprised um, at that, but I also say, the risks in the second half are downward. I mean, we just got the Supreme Court, uh, you know, n no, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, forgiveness on student loans. Uh, we have a potential U uh, UPS strike uh, coming up. The problem is that when you keep on hiking rates, it goes from a okay economy to a bad economy pretty quickly if you get any negative shock uh, there. And um, so second half, you know, I, I still think could be more challenging, but certainly until that disappointment comes, the path of least resistance is upward. Very good. Uh, you know, I, I got in those uh, Case-Shiller data to our inflation series. It, it's still showing, uh, you know, the headline number, as people talk about core PV today, that our headline number is still 1.5%. Our shelter inflation only went from 9 tenths to 1%. So it, it, it moved up a little bit, but in general, it still looks pretty good on our on our numbers. Yeah, I mean, so we did have a little turn upward, but, uh, you know, uh, year over year, we're eliminating bigger turns, I think, in, in the previous year's data. So, um uh you know you're you're right um it, it is a little surprising to see that upward movement existing home sales are one of the few real indicators that have been coming in on the housing market below expectations the lock in effect of the low mortgage rates are making that market very thin anyone wants to buy i just did a, I, I just did a calculation just in terms of um of of uh, the market and it's case, uh, you know, over pre-pandemic, house prices are up 40%, um, but the average mortgage cost is, is up 65%. So you get about a 120% increase in owner-occupied housing courses over a period where there's been a 14% increase in average wages, just to show how affordability on the housing market has collapsed. I'm, you know, it's, if you, if you need to buy a house right now, you don't have extra spendable income if you have to finance it with a mortgage. All right. Well, Professor, I enjoy the holiday weekend. Thank you for kicking us off to start the show. Yeah. Next week, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at that employment report. Thank you. Big, big jobs report next Friday. Have a good weekend. Thank you. 
We're going to turn the conversation over. Let me introduce our guest for the remainder of the program, Ray Micheletti, who uh, is CIO founder, I believe, of Relative Sentiment Technologies. Ray, welcome to Behind the Market. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your firm, a little bit about yourself, how you came to 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 start this business. Sure. Uh, it's a long story, but I'll keep it brief. So been in the markets for over two decades now, uh, initially doing quantitative long-short equity uh, at hedge funds and investment banks. Uh, that morphed into systematic short-term global macro up until about 2014. And then from 2014 onward, I've been focused on tactical asset allocation in the RIA space um, with family offices and, and RIAs. And most recently, started my own RIA with a couple uh, co-founders, uh, focused on relative sentiment as a factor. Uh, so, you know, there's momentum, there's value, there's quality, there's low volatility. Uh, we believe relative sentiment is uh, an anomaly similar to those factors. And uh, we started an, an RIA to offer uh, that factor as an exposure to investors uh, by subdivising an ETF, uh, also doing outsourced CIO work uh, with strategic and tactical allocations. And in the near future, we hope to release a, a research product that basically looks at uh, how relevant, what relative sentiment is saying for different asset classes, equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, smart data, crypto, et cetera. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, yeah, no, I, I've been following some of your work recently, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you came on behind the market. You were you were a Philly guy, but have, have moved. Uh, you've, you've become good friends with our our friend Pat's co-host of Behind the Markets, Wes Gray. He he convinced you to uh, to move outside of Philly. How has that been uh, been going? It's it's been wonderful. Um, in in April of 2021, I believe Wes sent me an email and he said I have a crazy idea, and I said, Well, I'm in the market for crazy ideas, and he called me up. He said, Hey. Move to Puerto Rico. We'll start an ETF. So uh, fast forward two years, and then here we are. And, uh, yeah, it's been great. And uh, Wes is a great friend, great mentor, very grateful for his support. So tell us a little bit about – so you, you have this OCIO where you're providing some tactical asset allocation as well as the ETF. What, uh, without getting too much into the details of the ETF, you know, tell us about, a bit about – why ETF? Why OCIO? In terms of what, where people think about using you guys? Sure, I think that uh, relative sentiment can fit into a portfolio in multiple ways. If you are a believer in um, factors, uh, relative sentiment could fit into a factor portfolio. It's very complementary to trend following. We can possibly talk about that later because I think it's, it's a fairly interesting characteristic. Um, so it could fit into a factor portfolio if you are. Um, a boglehead and you, you just believe in passive indexing, well, you could hold the ETF in a passive way and under the hood, it will make allocation changes in a tax efficient manner where you're aligning your allocations with what institutions are doing relative to what retail traders are doing. And you know, we can get into why that might make sense. And then, you know, another way that people could use it in their portfolio is if they have an alternative slate. So if they, you know, think this is an alternative, they can bucket it there. So it could fit in in a factor portfolio in a passive portfolio and into uh, an alternative sleeve in, in someone's portfolio. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about the, the foundation for it. I mean, you called it a factor that can compete with the other standard academic factors. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how, give us when you say relative sentiment, what does that mean? How are you tracking it? Give us some of sure. those details. So at a very high level, relative sentiment is where you compare the uh, positions, the flows, or the attitudes of one investor class versus another investor class. And you might think, well, why would you want to do that? Well, there's a lot of research going back decades that shows that institutions have better outcomes in the financial markets than individuals do. Um, whether you're looking in the U.S., whether you're looking globally, whether you're looking at equities or, or other asset classes, um, secondary offerings, IPOs, um, what have you, intra-quarter trading, institutions tend to have better outcomes than individuals. So if you can identify how institutions are leaning on a relative basis to individuals, you might be able to take advantage of the performance that institutions tend to accrue over time. Now, they don't win all the time because then there wouldn't be any retail traders in the market. They would give off. Just like the casino, the slot machine has to pay out every now and then to keep the customers coming back. Small traders win every now and then so that they exist as a pool of investors that institutions can ultimately exploit. 
Um, that might be a little cynical, but that, that seems to be the dynamics of how the markets work. Uh, but uh, so how do we track it? Well, there are many ways you can track it or different ways you can track it. So um, one way that we do it is by looking at the commitments of traders data. So this is a report that comes out every Friday. It shows how different investor classes are positioned in the futures and options market across various uh, asset classes, futures contracts, et cetera. Um, they have a category for institutions, a category for speculators, and a category for uh, non-reportable traders or retail traders. So you can see how the institutions are positioned, how they're changing their positions on a week-to-week basis and over a multi-week basis. And you can see the same thing for the retail traders. You can compare them and come up with a metric of, hey, are institutions more or less bullish than, than retail traders, and then adjust your allocations accordingly. So that's one way. Uh, there's another company in Germany um, called Sentix, S-E-N-T-I-X. Every week they send out a survey to institutions and to individuals and ask them how they feel about different markets, how they feel about the economy. And so you get these separate indices of institutional sentiment and individual sentiment, and you can compare those to each other. That's another way to do it. Um, and then uh, within the commitments of traders report, so one interesting aspect about relative sentiment is that, say you want to know what uh, a certain commodity is doing. If you look at just the relative sentiment in that commodity, it might not tell you a whole lot. But if you look at the relative sentiment in commodities that are similar to that or to other asset classes that play into how commodities perform, that can also be predicted. So there's a lot of cross-asset predictability in relative sentiment. So it's not solely how are people positioned in asset A, that's going to determine what asset A does. It's how they're kind of broadly positioned across different markets that are interrelated. Well, I think there's a lot we're going to drill into it in that opening answer, <laughs> but I, I, I think you were giving a shot at me being in Vegas this weekend. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, there's some dumb money and smart money out there, and you got to know which you are at these various points in time. But now, in terms of the analogy for, you know, the retail and institutional, I mean, it's interesting on, um, on, on some of that. And have you seen retail activity change over the recent years? I mean, there was the, you know, there's all the action in the options market and, and, and how that you're saying retail could become the smart money by following strategies like this. But what, what, what else would you say that's different about current, uh, the current retail setup? Well, that, that's an interesting question, and I get that quite often because there is a lot of um, media reports that there's a lot of retail activity, especially since the pandemic in meme stocks and Robinhood and, and all of that. Um, but a lot of that is taking place in the cash market, and most of what I look at is in the futures and options market. So I don't have a lot. So a lot of times what you'll see is that, okay, retail is doing something in the cash market, but they're doing something else in the futures market um, and these are futures retail traders, so that's, that's a smaller pool than the people that are uh, working in, in the cash market. And I, I don't have the flow data that you know, retail in the cash market, so I've only been able to look at the futures and options market, but it tends to be fairly predictable, so I haven't had sort of the impetus to look outside of that. So I can't really answer that question in terms of how things have changed, because in the futures and options market, they seem to be working as they have for a couple decades. Um, when the market's going down, Retail gets very bearish. Um, institutions start to buy. Market goes back up. Retail starts to chase. Institutions start to sell into them, and then you start the cycle all over again. Well, that's that's quite interesting. So, where as as you look at it today, um, what's happening in the market? I mean, there all these sort of rebalancing stories where the quarter end rebalancing cycle was going to come. There's going to be all sorts of equity selling, bond buying coming into this rebalancing and people were predicting all these flows away from equities. If the mar- maybe people pre-traded that and now, you know, the market have just closed on a strong note here in June. What do you think is happening right now in terms of all those positioning? Well, that, that's interesting because I think we're coming to a little bit of a crossroad. So if you step back about six to eight months and you go back to late last year, Whenever the narrative was uniformly bearish, uh, institutions were really buying uh, strongly, and retail did not want to buy equities at all. And now, uh, as the market has gone up, retail stayed bearish stubbornly in the early part of this year, and institutions kept buying, kept buying, kept buying. Then we come into June, and finally, the markets kind of broke through that resistance. The Nasdaq broke through 13,000, the S&P through 4,200, and then we just kind of got this big rush higher, 
And in that big rush higher, institutions have been selling the last few weeks. So, um, however, because they were buying as late as early June, I still think that the markets are in sort of a bullish uh, relative sentiment mode until possibly the end of July, early August, uh, because these signals tend to act with a seven to eight week uh, window, unless there's any refreshing of the buying uh, within that window. So if institutions continue to sell, and I actually, as the market has gone higher, they probably will continue to sell because they're the ones that have the assets to sell in the futures and options market. Um, well, I mean, I guess you can trade new futures, but they are the ones that will probably be selling into this. Then I think that relative sentiment could turn bearish in late July, early August, and that would put us right at the time frame of the next Fed meeting and the next uh, mega cap tech earnings reports, which um, inter- interestingly relative sentiment is still very bullish in the tech sector and for the NASDAQ, even though it's run up so high. If I look at the different sectors, the different regions, the different capitalizations, QQQ comes out as being, I'm sorry, I shouldn't mention it, but uh, the NASDAQ uh, in general is uh, is very bullish in the relative sentiment readings, despite its, its big run here. So we, I think we're going to still see some more bullish action over the course of the next few weeks. Well, let's, let's talk about this spread. I want to, I'm going to come back to some of the details of what you talked about, but let's stay high level on the, the, the concept itself. When you think about the grades of relative sentiments, you were just talking about the, the, the position could turn more bearish July, August. When you think about when you have a bullish reading on the market, how, you've done some research and you share um, in some of your weekly notes how much better the market returns have been on average than when sort of the, the opposite. Maybe sort of describe the spreads in performance you see available to people if they're if they're looking at these grades on relative sentiment. Sure. So um, the the chart that you're referring to, what I do is I uh, take four different relative sentiment indicators. Each one provides a desired asset equity allocation between zero and one hundred percent. So um, and then I just average them. So they each have a value between zero and one hundred and that's an equity allocation. I average them to get the composite relative sentiment equity allocation, which is also between zero and 100%. And then I bucket it into five buckets, between zero and 20%, 20 and 40, 40, 60, 60, 80, 80, 100. And then I look at the forward returns, given that relative sentiment is in one of those buckets. And it turns out uh, that when relative sentiment is in the low bucket, equities tend to have their worst returns. When it's in the high bucket, they tend to have their best returns on an annualized, compound annualized basis. And in between, you get sort of this monotonic, almost linear function of what the annualized returns are, given that level of relative sentiment. So it has this sort of monotonic, almost linear property as you go from low relative sentiment to high relative sentiment, that uh, forward returns tend to be better. And we're talking some pretty wide spreads in those, in those numbers. They're pretty widespread, yes. But, you know, it's one of those things where if you look at the lowest bucket, zero to 20%. How often is the market in that bucket? Not often. It's, it's less than 10% of the time it's in that lowest portion. So if you have like a minus five, minus 6% return over a couple weeks, and then you're out of that bucket, well, when you annualize that, that becomes a very large negative number. But, but if you lose five or 6% in a couple weeks, you also feel that too. Um, whereas in the upper bucket, you're, you're in the 80 to 100% range more than you are in the lower bucket. But that, too, is only about 15% of the time. And, uh, you know, over a, a course of a few weeks, you might have a 4 or 5% up move. You annualize that. And so, yes, those spreads are, are big. The annualization makes them look bigger. Um, but it's also you have to consider the, the amount of time that you're in those buckets. Now, if you look at sort of the 60 to 80 bucket, that's where you spend the bulk of your time. So, in, in a sense, a relative sentiment strategy that is adjusting its allocations proportional to this composite indicator um, over the long term, kind of mimics a 60-40. But at any given time, it could be widely divergent from a 60-40. Um, in the early part of 2022, relative sentiment was under 20%. Um, at the early part of 2023, it was over 90%. So it can vary. You know, Institutions change their appetite uh, as the market moves. I'm, I'm sure when you do OCIO work for people, you can customize to any sort of taste and flavor of what people are looking for. But as you, as you yeah. think about sort of how you would do it on a standard basis, if, if, if you're putting out that chart for people, is this what you would suggest as a baseline, you know, how they would move up and down their 
risk exposures, according to that kind of worldview, is, is when it's very bearish, you would try to add some hedges or reduce your exposure. You'd increase your exposure when you're in those top buckets. Yes, I think that uh, that's what I would recommend. When you're in the lower buckets, it, it tends to be a very fragile time for the markets. Uh, a lot of times what you see in those lower buckets is the momentum is negative, but institutions aren't buying the dip. And that is the worst combination. So if you think of four different combinations where momentum is positive or negative and relative sentiment is bullish or bearish, whenever relative sentiment is bearish and momentum is negative, sort of the lower left-hand quadrant, uh, that's bad news for the markets. That tends to be like the great financial crisis, the dot-com bubble burst, et cetera. What you have is retail keeps buying that dip. They're catching the falling knife, and institutions are saying you could have it because we're not there yet. Um, the opposite of that is whenever momentum is negative, but institutions are buying the dip. That's when you tend to have the best returns in the equity market uh, on an annualized basis. And just kind of going back to recent history, if you look at last October, uh, institutions were really buying the dip strongly. Um, it was very uncomfortable, to be honest with you, running a relative sentiment strategy in October when the world was ending and, and institutions wanted to be 85% equities. A lot of sleepless nights, but uh, they ended up you know, being right uh, in that regard. Um, and so, and the market has, has had a big run up. So we've kind of seen the statistics that I had kind of worked out before actually play out in real time the last you know, 18 months. And so now you also do some work um, across asset classes and some of those views across assets can feed into an equity worldview. So talk about some of how that research comes together in, in forming a, a equity view. Sure. So um, maybe your listeners are aware of the, uh, the macro framework where people look at growth and inflation, so GDP growth and inflation and how they're moving. And so growth can be increasing or decreasing, and inflation can be increasing or decreasing. So yes, you know, quadrants. And uh, in those different quadrants, different asset classes tend to do well. And so you can adjust your asset allocations based on growth and inflation. So recently I said, well, what if we looked at relative sentiment and growth-related assets, those being equities and commodities, which tend to do well when growth is increasing, and relative sentiment in inflation-related assets, those being currencies and short-term fixed income, and, uh, and, and if relative sentiment is bullish on growth-related assets and bullish on inflation-related assets, and by bullish on inflation-related assets, I, what I mean by that is that they're bullish on financial conditions easing, um, which may entail being bearish on a given asset. Like maybe they're short the end, they're bearish the end, but as the end goes down, that's good for financial conditions and risk assets respond. So if they're bullish on growth and they're bullish on financial conditions easing, risk assets tend to do well. If they're one of, or both of those conditions aren't met, risk assets tend to struggle. Uh, it's really fascinating. Quadrant two, when they're both bullish, it's very bullish for risk assets. Any of the other quadrants are not bullish. Now, it's nice that risk assets tend to spend about 50, 55% of the time in quadrant two. Uh, so, you know, most of the time the market is kind of drifting higher, risk assets are drifting higher. But, uh, but yeah, so, I, and so, you know, looking at, uh, there's different relationships. So, for example, the tech sector uh, on the inflation front, on the inflation-related assets, it likes a weaker dollar. Why does tech like a weaker dollar? I believe it likes a weaker dollar because when dollars going down, um, you have real rates tend to fall. So the denominator of their valuation model is good, uh, gets lower, and their overseas earnings are higher when the dollar is weaker. So tech valuations would tend to increase whenever you have bearish dollar relative sentiment. Um, on the flip side, consumer discretionary likes a bullish dollar um, because, again, this is sort of a story I tell myself, is that when there's more purchasing power for the consumer, um, they can buy more. And so that benefits the consumer discretionary sector. So each individual asset, asset class, they have their own individual relationships with these assets. Um, but, but it's sort of a general framework where I look at inflate, uh, relative sentiment in growth-related assets, relative sentiment in inflation-related assets, and create that uh, quadrant and, uh, you know, go from there. It's, it's quite interesting what you said about the dollar. I, I've done a, a research piece I could send you later on how earnings respond to moves in the dollar, and it's been very responsive. Like S&P earnings have a very different worldview 
when earnings are or the when the dollar's rising earnings have been basically nothing and when the dollar's falling earnings have been growing a lot and that effect the effect's getting stronger the last 25 years they're quite interesting, interesting. yeah and, and it's well what also is interesting is that dollar relative sentiment was bullish all of 2022 until october it turned bearish in mid-october the market's rallied since that time, but it's very, very close to turning bullish again. The smart money's been buying the dollar the last handful of weeks, and it, it could turn bullish. So it, we're at a sort of a crossroads. I think the easy gains are behind us. And if they're not behind us, if we have more easy gains and we kind of just shoot straight up, then I think it would probably be unsustainable and kind of come back down, sort of like a blow-off top kind of thing. But, uh, but things are definitely changing under the hood in terms of how people position. Institutions are selling equities. They're buying the dollar. They're doing some things in the gold market, and they're also staying away from commodities. So you might think that, oh, maybe the smart money is positioning for a credit crunch because in such a situation, commodities will probably do badly. Equities might fall, give up some of their gains. Um, gold might do well, and, uh, and the dollar will probably do well in the credit crunch as well. You said one thing on the yen, and I want to follow up on that. Um, in terms of that's also been a risk sentiment. The yen has been weak of late. Uh, it, people, when when there was some expectations, maybe they had in their yield curve control and the Fed was going to be done hiking. We got a little big, big rally in the yen. But has the relationship with the yen to risk assets changed at all or any, any view on what's happening in that currency? I haven't observed the, any change in the relationship. Uh, most risk assets tend to like a, a bearish yen relative sentiment. Um, there might be a handful that, uh, you know, I, I run so many that I, I don't really recall all the individual relations for all the different assets. It's, you know, a very systematic process that's kind of handled by an algorithm. Um, but there might be some assets that, so while most risk assets like bullish growth and, and bullish inflation relative sentiment, there are others. If you're looking at smart beta, for example, like value and quality, um, and betting against beta, for example, they tend to like the opposite. They tend to like when relative sentiment is bearish on growth because then you have the spread between the safe haven longs and the glamour stock shorts. Um, and so they might be some assets that prefer uh, a stronger yen as opposed to a weaker yen because that would tend to coincide with a, a risk-off environment. And, and Ray, in your opening comments about how you track sentiment, you, you talked about futures positioning and then indexes like from Centix that tracks positioning. How would you, you know, when you think about like sort of the hard data in terms of the futures position versus what you might call the soft data, you know, the, the survey work of what people say they're doing. How do you think about the efficacy of the signals you get from, you know, what people are actually doing with their positions versus what they, how they respond to surveys? Well, I do think that how people are positioned is a much stronger um, indicator of, of sentiment uh, because they're, you know, they're putting their money where their beliefs are and in a way. And also, when you think about institutions, they have so much uh, in terms of resources. Every year they hire new PhDs, new CFAs, new MBAs, uh, and they set the moose on finding out what the state of corporate and, and economic fundamentals are. And then they take positions based on those analyses. And their positioning then could be viewed as an implied fundamental indicator in a, in a sense. Like, how is the market, how is the economy going to change? Are we moving to a better fundamental state, a worse fundamental state? Um, their marginal positioning uh, tends to be an indicator of that. So I do think that positioning data is much stronger. Sentiment, uh, the survey data, it has its uses. What I find is that uh, it's, it's very... It, you know, I don't like to put all my eggs in one indicator basket. So if I just use positioning data, I'll give you an example. Um, what I view as my best indicator of the four that I, that I look at, it was um, bear, it turned bearish in July of 2021. And the market went up about another 5% in another four months. And if I were only trading that, I would have been out of the market completely, essentially, while the market kind of grinded higher for another four months, which in the market is an eternity. But the other indicators that I have, including the survey-based one, um, was still bullish up until January. So that kind of gave me some 
uh, residual equity allocation, while this other indicator is turned bearish. So it's sort of like an ensemble uh, method where, you know, some of the indicators pick up the slack when other ones are, are not, you know, getting the calls right. Um, of course, there are times when all four of them don't get them right. I mean, nothing is, is perfect. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I use multiple sources simply to kind of diversify and to have multiple perspectives on what institutions might be doing. But I do believe the position is stronger. That's an it's interesting point about the ensemble method and getting four indicators. And you, and you brought up sometimes, you know, nothing's perfect. What, if you were to say things that would cause them all to break down, like what's a environment where things go against what your signals say? Well, um, that's a good question. I think that you know, one of the signals is reliant on what the secular correlations are between equities and bonds. And so for the longest time, from 2000 to 2020, those correlations were negative. And so if institutions were long equities and they were selling long-duration bonds and they were longer the 10-year than the 30-year, that was a very bullish signal. Whereas when we kind of morphed into this inflationary secular regime, it was the opposite. You know, buying equities is still good, but you also want them to be buying bonds. Whereas before, whenever they were buying bonds, that was an indication that equities were probably going to go down. It was a risk-off scenario. Whereas now, with inflation being a concern, or at least having been a concern, um, when inflation goes down, equities and bonds rise together. When it uh, falls, uh, when it goes up, they fall. When it goes down, they rise together. So the correlations have turned positive. Now, if that kind of whipsaws and, and always is changing as opposed to being something that's steady over a long period of time, that could cause problems in, in that indicator. Um, also, you know, another thing that could, could happen and has happened is uh, one of the futures contracts that was very predictive of what risk assets were going to do was the euro dollar. Like, we're smart money bullish on the euro, euro dollar because if they were, that tended to be good for risk assets. Well, they phased out the euro dollar as of the end of this month, and now it's the SOFR, um, the three-month you know, SOFR. And will that still have the same type of predictive power as the euro dollar? You know, so they're in, you know, occasionally the government shuts down, so you have still data. So there's all, you know, it's not the greatest, most ideal setup, but um, as long as the government stays open and they're releasing that data, uh, you know, I, I think that the relationships that are in play in terms of, you know, as long as growth and inflation works on the macro front, it should probably still work in the, in the relative sentiment realm as well. Well, there's a, another number of good things to drill in from that. I, you, you talk a little bit about that equity bond correlation. I, I thought a lot about that dynamic as well. Um, but you also do some of the relative sentiment for bonds. I mean, what do you think about the different bond markets today? How did the signals look at bonds in, in, in their attractiveness? They do. They do. Let me, let me pop up my spreadsheet because I have a whole list of bonds and what the relative sentiment is currently saying. So in the bond world... The bonds that it likes the most, it likes tips a lot, and that's primarily a factor of bearish dollar relative sentiment. Because when dollar relative sentiment is bearish, real rates tend to go down. Now they haven't really been going down, and tips have kind of been going sideways. So it hasn't been the greatest signal recently, but it, it does like them. And dollar relative sentiment might turn bullish soon, so it, it could go from loving tips to hating tips really fast. Um, it also likes junk bonds. Um, high-yield bonds relative to some of the other you know, bonds, like government bonds, et cetera. Um, it's not overwhelmingly bullish on junk bonds right now, but it's sort of you know, in the bullish realm. It kind of it, it expects junk bonds to, to rise and for the, you know, the spread between junk and the tenure to, to decrease. Um, it doesn't like emerging market bonds. And uh, it kind of likes long duration, but it, again, it's sort of uh, on the same level of bullishness as, as junk bonds. At the moment, it's, it's interesting. I, the ten, the the five year tips were getting to two percent, uh, which is a level I've been talking about. Is a level that it becomes super interesting. Two percent on the on the real yield. Uh, you know, Professor Siegel's been talking about that real yield declining to like zero to fifty basis points over time, and so two percent is starting to be interesting. And and now. Your point is, is is quite interesting on how much this relative sentiment on your indicator matters on the dollar signal on it. So that, that'll be an interesting cross-current 
we'll have to start watching and, and seeing what yeah. what happens there. In terms of your your high yield indicators, how much of that is that tie off of the equity sentiment? Because high yield bonds have like an equity like characteristic, and you know if your equity signals roll over, your high yield signal may roll over. Yes. Um, that is the case. I was going to pop up exactly what those relationships are, but yes, when I recall what the, the growth-related relative sentiment relationships are for uh, junk bonds, a lot of it tends to be what equity relative sentiment is doing. And also, you know, yep. here's about commodity relative sentiment as well, but equities definitely have a big role in that. And a lot of risk assets, have, equities have a big role in, in, in their uh, relationships and that equity relative sentiment, as I kind of mentioned, looks like it might start to turn bearish in late July. So late July, early August could be an interesting time for the market. We'll have earnings reports coming out. We'll have the next Fed meeting. And you might have relative sentiment turning bearish. Um, so it could be an interesting time. But until then, the party might continue. Uh, I mean, it, the market is looking like it, it has a window of opportunity over the next you know, three to four weeks. You mentioned uh, EM bonds is not favorable, but let, let's go back to equities for a moment in terms of we talked U.S. equities and you talked some of the sectors that like of tech still being quite bullish. How much when you when you go international equities, uh, I know I know you have some world views on, on those markets. What what is it like? What is it not like? What, what, what do you speculate is going on in those markets? Um, so in developed markets, it's still road of sentiment is still pretty bullish and it has been since late last year. Um, and it was also bullish on, on emerging markets starting in late last year, but it's recently turned bearish on emerging markets. In fact, of the multiple relationships I look at for emerging markets, um, almost zero of them are in a bullish state. So it's, it's kind of in an overwhelmingly bearish state right now, emerging markets, uh, with the exception of a handful. So it, it actually likes Brazil for some reason, it likes India, but, uh, on the whole, it's not super bullish uh, on emerging markets. But in developed markets, it likes, it likes Japan, it likes the UK, it likes Germany, it likes France, it likes Spain, it likes Italy, um, it likes Australia. So it, it, it's much more bullish on developed markets right now than it is on emerging markets. And, and so what's driving, maybe if you could talk through the details of like what might be Speculating there, I mean the, I mean so Japan is sort of off to the races, you know, in terms of performance. So how much of it is the trend of the markets doing well? Um, you know, like China on the opposite side, China drives a lot of EM. Is it, is it tied to the performance? Is it tied to the positioning? What, where's the? It's, it's all the, tied uh, to positioning. It doesn't look at the momentum at all. It looks at how people are positioned. It looks at their extreme positioning over a window. So if you just look at how they're currently positioned. It's going to whipsaw you because, you know, sometimes they buy in a week and they sell in a week. But if you kind of smooth that out over a period of, of several weeks, um, that kind of gives you a much more stable signal. And, and that's really the only signals that are factoring into these decisions. And, and I should say that, you know, it's not don't run out and buy or sell any of these things because I'm saying that these things are bearish or bullish. Uh, you know, this is sort of, you know, over the long haul, the distribution tends to be better. Distribution of returns tends to be worse when it's bearish. But it's a distribution. There are times when it's bearish and the thing shoots up 10%. There are times when it's bullish and you have pullbacks. All of the strategies have, you know, so I don't want anyone to, uh, to go out and, and, you know, take out a second mortgage and then start, you know, shorting EM or anything like that. Right. But, but so talk about, so in some of your strategies that you employ, when you think about this sort of U.S. versus foreign question, um, how would you think about incorporating yourself when you, when you run strategies? Is, is, and you, let's say you had a, you mentioned that your overall five quintile bucket had a, you know, a degree of, of how much it would be from zero to 20 all the way up to that 80 to 100. If you're thinking of managing a global portfolio, how international would you get if things like really like international or how U.S. would you get? How do you think about rotating between U.S. and foreign stocks there? Okay, so the way I've been doing it up until recently and will continue to do it, but I've, I've been developing, you know, other indicators and what have you, but that, sur that Centex survey-based relative sentiment. So they have relative sentiment for the U.S., Asia, Japan, Japan, Europe. And what I found is that if you, this is actually kind of mind-blowing in a way, but if you build independent models where you're looking at, say, the returns of the U.S. and those relative sentiment signals in those four different regions, and you get a relative sentiment allocation for the U.S., and then you do the same thing independently for Europe. You take European returns, 
and use those same uh, census indicators and get an allocation for Europe and do the same thing for Japan, Asia, and Japan. And then you line them up in a cross section and you look at, okay, which has the highest desired equity allocation? You go along that for the next month. Which one has the lowest desired equity allocation? If you go along that for the next month and you compare those two strategies where you're buying the top and then buying the bottom and then buying the second and buying the third, they actually like form a linear thing where if you're every month you're buying the region that has the top allocation, you tend to do better. And if you're every month you're buying the one that has the worst desired allocation, you tend to do worse. So what I do is I take, okay, what's the desired allocation for the U.S.? What's the desired allocation for Europe and Japan? And I just kind of take the ratios of those, take a weighted average of Europe and Japan that's kind of developed, compare that to the U.S., um, which whenever one is higher, I kind of base my allocations to the U.S. and develop on those ratios. So, so sometimes it could be really favoring international, and, yeah. uh, and people have to be comfortable with this. You know, they're already making a tactical call in general, but this is just another tactical call that it might go, you know, try to add some value by overweighting the region is, is uh, one of your one of your big views. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay, so you're doing a lot of tactical work in this uh, international mm-hmm. U.S. is just another tactical, you know, position you'll, you'll end up making on there. Yes. Um, so I, I would just tactically uh, see how the desired... Uh, equity allocations are for those two regions based on relative sentiment and then adjust the allocations accordingly. Like you know, a lot of times it's kind of evenly divided. Uh, it doesn't, yep. it's too extreme. Um, there have been periods where it has, but it's, it tends to be roughly 40, 60, anywhere in there, 40, 60 to 60, 40. I, I want to come back to something we spoke about just briefly. And, you know, I, I think, we, we talked about sort of smart money and dumb money, you know, retail trading options. And, and, and I wondered, you know, through the pandemic, you saw all these people speculating in the options market. And, you know, now, and, and you saw some of these institutional, the quote unquote, smart money get burned by trying to have a bunch of shorts. And I wonder if there's any change in, in, in short interest rates. I, I think I've seen some points of short interest declining on individual stocks. Uh, that maybe people saw what happened to GameStop and those other meme stocks and have now been more afraid. And they're using things like ETFs and futures to hedge. And so I've wondered myself, can the, you know, if, if people are just net short futures more than shorting individual stocks, if that would change the, what you should read from the positioning? That's, that's an interesting question. Um so the way I look at it is I normalize it and I kind of take a, a Z-score over a moving window. So if there's a shift in the level, that will get kind of uh, normalized and, and it'll be relative to how they've been positioned recently. So let's say there is a shift lower, but then in the near term, they kind of are less short than that shift that they made. Well, that would be a relatively bullish move. Um, so it, it's really, it, it's nuanced in a way in the sense that I'm looking at how Institutions are positioned relative to how they're typically positioned. Our retail is positioned compared to how they're typically positioned. And then I compare both of those relative, relative things to each other. And, and that seems to be where a lot of the uh, information tends to reside. But um, to answer your question, well, actually, you kind of mentioned that institutions or hedge funds might not be shorting as much. What is interesting is that if you look in the equity space, hedge funds tend not to be the smart money. The smart money tends to be the pension funds, the insurance companies, the endowments, the very large asset managers, not the hedge funds. However, when you go outside of equities and you're looking at commodities and currencies, the hedge funds tend to be the smart money. The CTAs, the hedge funds, they tend to get the currencies right. They tend to get the commodities right, um, but they don't tend to get equities right, which is interesting. Um, And it could be the case because in the, That's a, that uh, seems like a hot take that we're dropping on the podcast here. That hey, hedge funds are not good timers. The smart money is these institu- is the pensions and endowments, and not the hedge funds. What 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 came? What what had you come to that conclusion? Okay, so uh, just simply from the data, but it also it's the nature of who the smart the, who the institutions are in each of the markets. So in the oil market, the quote unquote institutions are really the commercial hedgers. And who are the commercial hedgers? They're Exxon, they're Chevron. These are the producers that are selling into rising markets and this, that, and the other. 
the non-commercial traders in the crude oil market could be the asset managers that are viewed as institutions in the equities market. So it could just be a matter of classification in the different asset markets. Because uh, the commitments of traders report classifies hedgers as those who use the market to hedge business risk, speculators as those who use it to speculate, and non-reportable is below a threshold of reporting. Um, so in the financial markets, those who are hedging using the futures market to hedge are the ones that have the big cash portfolios, insurance companies, pension funds, et cetera. And when they're hedging, whether they're taking more beta or less beta, they're basically telling you which way they think the market's going. But then you go to a different market, and it could be you know, a different dynamic. So we're, we're in our final few, few moments here. As you, as you think about your research agenda, things that you're working on, so it sounds like you have some you know, ETFs in the hopper. You're doing stuff with managing allocations for people. What, what, what's on your agenda for where, you, where you're taking relative sentiment technologies? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see how things evolve, but, you know, maybe someday we'll have uh, sector ETFs that, you know, are long the sector when relative sentiment is bullish or less long when it's bearish and, and just have a suite, a family of relative sentiment uh, indicators, ETFs, and strategies. Uh, but, you know, we, we have to walk before we can run and uh, we'll try to get off the ground here. So, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and it was a pleasure. Where, where can people find more about your ETFs or if they want to find you for an OCIO-type mandate, where, where should they look for you? Uh, relativesentiment.com. One word. Uh, you can send me an email at ray at relativesentiment.com or info at relativesentiment.com, or you can visit our website. And I've been a recent, uh, call it the last few months, subscriber to his weekly notes. He gets some really interesting charts and views of what's happening in the market, so people look for his ways to sign up for those notes and Ray, it's been a pleasure having you here on behind the market thanks so much for joining thank you jeremy enjoy your as we go <laughs> hopefully i become some of the smart money out here i'm going to try uh, try my best uh, i'd like to thank our producer chris tooks on the soundboard you can listen to us on our behind the markets podcast every week have a great week everybody Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.